In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Today we speak with Baj Townsend, a woman who has grace by her side and as her compass. Baj has done it all. She nearly became a professional tennis player. She next became a successful restaurant entrepreneur. During a break, she became a longshore woman. Baj then got into commercial real estate and was next offered the opportunity to tour the world as a jazz guitarist. She later moved into financial planning and helping families with money. This might all sound exciting and perfect, but as you'll hear, Baj faced many challenges. Some were quite dark. She attributes grace leading her through all aspects of her journey, the good times and the bad. Hi, this is Sandy. Baj found her real roots in the business of helping multi-generational families stay connected while growing and understanding their wealth. Baj is a member of a family who experienced the effects of a third-generation breakdown to the family business. The family built the lifestyle, but not the foundation to successfully transfer the family values and mission to future generations. As a result, there was turmoil and a money grab. Baj now dedicates her professional life to helping families avoid this experience. Please be aware that later in the interview, Baj shares parts of her life experience that may not be appropriate for younger listeners and may be difficult for listeners of any age. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from this discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Baj Townsend. Baj Townsend, welcome to Money Tales. Thank you, Cami and Sandy. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Well, to start us out, we'd like to ask our guests to tell us fairly briefly a little bit about yourself. In particular, share two or three pivotal moments that make you the person you are today. I think grace has been a pivotal, more than a moment, has been a pivotal element that has made me who I am. I am grateful to grace. I think also wanting to be an independent woman. And what I mean by that is because there was someone in my life who was pivotal in my life, didn't believe in me. It was like, well, I kind of believe in me, so let's make it happen. I think those were two pivotal parts to my life. Mm, those are good. We're, we're intrigued. Where'd you grow up, Baj? In New York as a little kid. Certainly was exposed to a lot there, which was tremendous for me in terms of responsibility, expectations, and money. I then went uh, off to school, Upper State New York, learned how to deal with money on my own, 
and then went to once I was in college I was on my own so I was like okay then what now I was good enough to be a professional tennis player however that required finances you don't make a billion trillion bucks just because you are a professional tennis player it's quite the grind and terrific for those who have that support but I didn't so I had to bow out of that world because I didn't have any backup to help launch me so I um started a business figured okay that should work and uh, learned a lot from that i was the first longshore woman this is in milwaukee who made it up to the point where they could have joined the union but because i was the first one to be at that spot milwaukee was not going to be at that time would have been considered in the union world the laughing stock and hire this what do you call them oh yeah females so that was not to be, and I was, uh, the whole season was stopped on day 28 when the next day I would have been a provisional union member, and then the day following I would have been a union member for life. That was not to happen. And so the docks were closed early, ships were sent out, and that was it. But anyway, that's a little bit of my, uh, my life. I am curious about many things. I'm, I'm going to start with tennis. Tennis lessons are not cheap. Tennis lessons are not cheap. How did you get interested in tennis and how far did you make it? I was ranked high in the East Coast. I was part of what was then called the Junior Whiteman Cup. I now think for women it's called the Hopman Cup. I was a player. And once you leave the kid level, you move to the adult level. And at that time, it was okay. If you're going to go touring around and going into the tournaments, this is no longer parent backing. And my father had already passed when I was little and my mother and I were not, were not good, we're not allies. And so uh, she pulled the plug. That was it. How old were you? 17, 18. So before college? Yeah, 16, 17, 18. I was good. Tell us what that felt like. That was when I learned to um, become determined determination was always huge for me but when that that's okay i will make sure i get into the college of my choice so that i can continue tennis it's just going to be that simple because tennis is my thing so i applied to a college on the west coast that i was sure i was going to get into i was sure and at that time women were just starting to go to college and unfortunately for me a lot of women had applied to this college i was number 1 on the waiting list and number one on the waiting list was as far as being nowhere as I, uh, my mother told me to make a decision. And either I could go to the college that, that I, was, I was accepted by or I could wait it out on my own and then I'd be on my own. And I just didn't have that much courage because hmm. I didn't have, I just didn't know how to get work and how to get steady work in a brand new place. I just didn't have that. Uh, ability, skill, or courage that others have. And so it was like, okay, that's over. That's understandable. Would you tell us a story about going to college? And were you playing tennis in college? A little bit, but I had to move into another direction. So, and there was not the, I was on the varsity. It was not enough for me. And so it was a slow, it, it was different. 
than the vision I had. Because you wanted to go pro. Yeah, I was. Yeah, which would have been a whole different world, a whole different way of approaching tennis. And varsity was great. I was number one, and and it was marvelous. So you're playing in college. How'd that feel? And I'm playing in college, and college was not the experience I was looking for. I was nominated for for uh, freshman president, and that was an honor in and of itself. However, at that time, I was already thinking about my path and thinking more visionary and thinking more as an independent woman rather than a woman who had a lot of support behind them. The uh, person who was also nominated as class president came into the speech saying that the usual as class president, I look forward to being on the council and doing what will bring us forward, blah, blah, kind of the usual. And I came in and I had pants on, which at that time for a women's college was a little radical. <laughs> and so that, that itself said something. College was a great experience in a few instances, but for the most part, it was not for me. It was a small women's college. It was great for that. And then I left and went to a big university in the Midwest and could not transition. It was just too big of a transition. I felt very small and lost. So I did not um, continue that process. And instead, a few months later, found a few people who wanted to enter into business with me. And so off into that world, I went. What kind of business were you starting? We decided to start a restaurant because we didn't see a lot of restaurants catered to the students. And so we said, let's start a student restaurant, which was a good idea to begin with. And it was right off the university, one of the university paths, meaning streets that students walked up and down. So that was a great location. And we decided to do something that was a little different. Hmm, imagine that. I see a trend here. I think I did too. We decided to fashion ourselves off of a French restaurant in Paris, which was started in the 1920s and which was still going concern. I don't remember the name of it. And it was very successful. And part of its success was it never charged prices. It did not have prices on the menu. You paid what you thought the dinners were worth. And we thought, that's fantastic. We believe in that. Let's do it. So we did. And what's rare for a restaurant is to be successful early in its business, early in its career, so to speak. And we were profitable within a year. And so we kept going. And it was a great business. Part of our philosophy and our protocol was that as business owners, it was a lot of very difficult work. There was, it was really a nonstop business. You had to take off for a few months every so many months. You could take your time off because otherwise you were on. You could do what you wanted. And that gave me the opportunity to go to the docks in, that, in a particular November and work the docks, which I did. We trusted each other. We respected each other. We communicated well. And uh, it, it went well. I could sell my shares, which I did in a few years because as much as I love Wisconsin, Wisconsin seriously has a piece of my soul. I couldn't see the ocean from there. Imagine that as well. And so I realized I needed to keep going. I needed to get to the West Coast and see that ocean. And so I did. I took the risk with some money in my pocket and kept heading west. So, Baj, I think this is interesting. You went from one school environment to the next school environment. It seems like you're, you're trying to find your place. You need money. So you start a business. 
that's catering to students who aren't typically people with a lot of money. You start a restaurant, you don't charge any set prices, people pay whatever they want, and you're, you're rolling in some dough, even though you're learning the definition of hard work, which I'm sure you've learned through tennis before then, but that's pretty incredible. What worked about the business, I think, was that it didn't cater only to students. So it wasn't student food, so to speak. It was very well thought out and well cooked. It was, it was good food. And so it became more a community restaurant as a student place to go for a quickie. It was well received by the community. And in addition, I helped open a bakery and a, a co-op that's still there today that's well known and started another. I mean, it was, it was just the timing was good and people were receptive to that which we were bringing into the community at that time. I'm so intrigued about something. I love this, this pricing model. And I think about money conversation. Would you share with us, what did you all learn? Being so successful, people must have paid in excess of your costs. Sounds like at times well of excess. What'd you learn about human behavior and this pricing strategy? Well, what I learned was that money is a difficult conversation. It was for us as the owners. We had to talk about what money meant to each one of us individually. And fortunately, is that we were young, so trust was easy to garnish and trust was easy to give. And so we could have these deep conversations without worrying about who was going to hurt and who was going to help. To be able to determine where money was going to be difficult to talk about and how that might impede on deliveries, on buying food, on pricing food, on pricing, getting the food, and other conversations. We learned very quickly that we needed to get into those conversations so that we didn't impede on each other's limits. We created that for ourselves so that we could make good decisions more easily than if we didn't do that. So I learned that money conversations are delicate, money conversations are sensitive, and money conversations, if lost, can be hard to, to return to a place of understanding and trust. How many owners were there along with you? Four of us. That's some serious group dynamics. It was terrific. One of them did leave, but there were three of us. It was terrific. And what did it feel like when you sold your share of the business and you had money in your pocket? It felt like it was time to go. Even though I was long gone and had left that, didn't stay as an outside owner, I left. It was wonderful for me to hear, oh my gosh, it continued. How cool. The model meant something for a while. And that, was, that meant something to me viscerally. It's beautiful. Yeah. Did you feel was, like an independent woman at that time? No, I felt scared. It was like, okay, because I really didn't have the purpose, the dream. It was like, oh, my dream was get to the ocean, stop at the edge of the ocean, which I did do. Okay, before we get there, tell us about longshoring. Longshoring was fantastic for me in many ways. I think when I first showed up, I'm a small woman. So they looked at me like, oh, great, you'll last two or three hours. You're not a threat. And, if, and I might do the same if I saw something small and then coming up. It's like, okay, sure, whatever. 
However, what they didn't realize is I'm very determined. I don't do things casually. And if I do things, I do things because I believe I can do them. So I came into the longshore business figuring I could carry my weight, whatever it was. And the first day was carrying 50 and 75 pounds of flower bags from the hold of the ship onto the pallets. They would then go to the trains and they would be sent off to wherever they were. And so by the time it came to three weeks, it was a different story. I was now a threat because I lasted. I could do the work and I did the work and I did overtime. I did weekends. It was like, this is a good gig. And so by three weeks, management was a little, had a different view of me. And so I was put on different assignments. One assignment I still remember today was I was on a hold of a ship that had cow hides. They weren't that fresh. They now had maggots on them. And they were, yeah, they were not exactly, they're not exactly what you wanted to hold. They weren't the leather bags and the leather jackets you might be wearing today. They weren't in that shape. I was to uh, move the, these cow hides from where they were in the state they were in into another location so that they could get onto their ships to Russia, Turkey, wherever they were going to be made into the leather goods that we wear and, and carry and hold today. They figured, that'll do it. And I figured, okay, let's go. And so uh, I did my work, and that was did that for a few days. And they, I didn't break me. I just figured, okay, this is about time. Is that right? You, you felt like they were trying to just run you out of there? Oh, I don't, I understand that. So I just carried on because it was like, hey, I can do this work. And so um, I did the work. And how long were you doing that for? At the time, I thought it was just going to be a few weeks. But then when I learned that, sure, you can be a union member. Sure, I'll go the full 30. I've got that time available to me. Let's go. That was not to be. I love this. Let's go motto. Yeah. That's kind of what you are. Yeah, exactly. Day 28. This is in in November of a year. A storm was coming down from Canada down the Great Lakes. And the real question for everybody at that point was, is the storm going to come down before day 29 or is she going to make it to day 29? Because that's really what it was about on some people's minds and thoughts, (laughs) including my own. And so day 26, the storm stalled. Yes, and I went, okay, it looks like I'm there. And uh, day 28, whoever was in charge decided, this season is over. Ships, you're done. We're closing the season a little early. And you go, season's over, and you you don't need to come back. Hmm. And that was two days short of full union membership. But that was it. If I'd gotten that card, I could have gone to any dock, anywhere, in America and demanded work because you were then a bona fide union member. And there were docs that were not ready for that at that time. I was not going to break the, the ceiling. That's unbelievable. That was how that was. How did that feel to you being snubbed by the union like that? I really didn't know the union. They were a non-entity to me. I never met management. We were all just workers and but there were certainly people on the ships that I was on all the various ships that were wondering what are you doing here what are you doing here and others were going go get them this is cool there's nothing wrong with this I love my 
my sister, girlfriend, whatever, to be here. I'll, there were definitely sides of the story at that time because it was, it was still new enough that there were sides to be taken. All right, Baj, so you are an extremely determined woman. What causes you to be so driven? Is this a financial drive or just, I mean, you go from a 24-7 restaurant job to then you're supposed to take a break, but you say, nope, I'm going to be a longshore woman, which is certainly challenging. Why at being a tennis pro, you know, almost a tennis pro, what, what's in you? What, tell us what's driving, what, what does this drive come from? I would not be able to tell you because to me, it's not a drive. It's not a, yeah, let's go. That's not what it's about for me. I think some of it is grace and some of it is just, I knew people in the town that I was in that were going to Milwaukee and I thought, Hey, I'll go with you. We were buds. And so it was sure. Join us. It was just that, that easiness and that acceptability and me knowing that I could do it. There's no statement to be made for me. There's none of that. Because if that had been my intention, I don't think I could have done the work because that would have been a different purpose. And that might have been, oh, no, I don't think I can do this. What am I doing here? And your heart and soul are pulling you toward the coast. Yes. You end up where on the West Coast? California. I think it was Big Sur. I was all of a sudden, okay, okay. There's no town. It was just, okay, end of the road. I see edge, I see water, this is it. This is what I wanted, I'm here. And it was literally on the edge of a cliff on Monterey, I believe, in, or somewhere in that area in California. And okay, Baj, you're here. There's nothing here other than you've met your objective, now what? It was like, okay, I'll figure this out. What'd you figure? I figured I'll get a job because I can do that. So I did. And I was in, this is a bizarre story. I was in Berkeley, California, and I answered, I think I answered an ad in the paper because that's what there was then. And it was in real estate. And I thought, yeah, I'd love to be in real estate. That sounds like a good gig. And Berkeley was still a smaller town. It wasn't a big city yet, but it was on the verge. It was starting to ramp up. And so what I ended up being in today's vernacular was to be a commercial real estate salesperson. Of course you are. I love it. Like, I had no idea. And so they gave me the, they told me what to do. And it was, okay, I can, I can do this. Because I didn't know what limits were. And I didn't know what you couldn't do. And I didn't know what anything was. It was like, sure. And so I was told to find the prospects for these buildings. It was like, well, sure, that must be easy. Just round them up. I didn't know what I was doing. But I found prospects. And I gave them to the firm. And I know these prospects became real deals and real partners in making the commercial real estate world happen in Berkeley. And so I went back to the company, of course, as I should, innocently. And my pay? I think I brought you partners that you're now are making deals with, as I understand that you've gone to the banks and you're taking the next step. So in my naivete, believe me, I learned a lot from this. I think I'm supposed to get paid right about now. The answer was, oh no, you got paid for making the calls that you're 
very little amount an hour there. And I'm going, wow, I don't think so. But there was no paperwork. There was nothing signed. I was just very innocent. And that was a good learning opportunity for me. I could say that much. So I learned from that. Okay, we're in the big league. We got to do big league stuff. And uh, so that was, I guess that was another pivotal moment that you asked earlier about, Cammy. Are there pivotal times? This is pivotal, I think. It was like, okay, come in with a lot more bravado, with a lot more game, with a lot more wisdom or knowledge, maybe wisdom, I'd say also, and a lot more get in there to play because they will play. Will you say more about that? It was to know your environment. If you're going to be in an environment and you want respect, not ask for it, but find out if it's going to be given. Hmm. A lot of environments don't give respect and to learn quickly how to deal with that because otherwise you can be taken. And um, it's just, just a wild world we live in. It's a priceless tip. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome, Cammy. So that was the end of that job? That was the end of that job because I went, okay, wow. Fool, what is that phrase? Fool once, don't blame me. But Shame on you. Yeah. Fool, Fool yeah. me twice, shame, shame on, on me. Yeah. So I, I took that to heart and went, okay, I can't do this twice. This would be ridiculous. But I've learned, and so now let's, let's move into the real world because apparently that's what I'm doing. I, through circumstances, um, I was also doing music. Music was my life. I had been introduced to a very famous jazz, I was a jazz guitarist, and he'd heard about me, I don't know how. He invited me to the, um, the big theater where he was performing in San Francisco. I, he invited me backstage to play for him to see if I was worthier or not. And so I came with my guitar, I played for him, and he opened the doors to New York for me. He said, you will be the jazz guitarist with me, and I just went, wow. This is my dream. This was my dream. If I can be the musician I always wanted to be, the female jazz guitarist, I'm, I'm good. And so right there on the spot, he offered me to come back to New York with him. And I feel like a ditz right now, but this was another pivotal moment for me, Cameron. At that moment when he asked me, the, the vision of the future came in front of me and I saw myself in New York and I saw myself as the jazz guitarist and everybody would love me. That was the beautiful side. I also saw the dark side. The music world at that time was full of drugs and I wanted it so much that I knew I would do anything for it. And I knew anything meant anything. I went, Bob, you can't do this. You will get smushed. And so I said to him, I can't do this. <laughs> And it was everything I wanted, but I also saw the other side of it. I, that was part of grace, which was uh, a beautiful part. That's been, always been a beautiful part of my life. I, really, grace was there and said, you, you won't make it out alive. There was a very f well-known female jazz guitarist. She was very good. She was beautiful. She was the dream I saw, and she died of a heroin overdose. And... Um, I said no, no to the dream because I saw the other side of it. I think it's incredible that you were pro status level as a tennis player, and then you're an amazing jazz guitarist as well. I took the same time that I took for tennis. Tennis was whatever available time 
tennis, whatever available time, guitar. You are focused. Focus and sustain. My gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I believe in focus. I believe it's just it's a beautiful thing as long as it's done with grace and beauty and all the good qualities. Then I was still in California and I was working and uh, loved music and dedicated to it and studied Indian music. And anyway, I was kidnapped. I can't remember. I, I'm not going to go into the details of how. They're just not important to this conversation. That took me out of the world of work, that's for sure. It took me out of the world of everything, a lot of things. And that lasted for a few years and many years, actually. When I came through, I landed in Seattle. Hey, Paj, before we get to Seattle, yeah. just, just so that people understand, could we get a little context? Kidnapping is a, sure. is a very... Um, Absolutely. It's not something we come in contact with a lot. Can you just yeah. explain, just give us a little bit more context on what happened? Apparently, they had been stalking me for quite some time, and so were well aware of me, and I was their target. That's all I know. Were they trying to, to ransom money? or um, I don't know what their purpose was. I'll never know what their purpose was. There was some money involved, but that wasn't all. I didn't carry a purse at the time. Or fortunately, I didn't carry. I hadn't had my wallet on me. I had no idea on me, so they never really knew my true name, and I never gave it to them. So that they, if they were after money, they couldn't contact my family. So they kidnapped me. This had this lasted for a bunch of years. There was there was just a lot going on in it. I ended up in Seattle. It wasn't on my radar. I didn't even know Seattle existed. Wait, they, I escaped. They, you you escaped for the third time. Money was not in this game at all. It was, it was about rape and not letting me eat and not letting me change clothes. And it was just, it was awful. I'm sorry that your life was filled with that experience. It sounds, it, it sounds really difficult. What was getting you through? Did you have visions for the future or was it always a focus on the present? I'm going to go back to that word grace. I have no idea why I was kidnapped. It's like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just this person. I'm just this entity. I'm nothing, and so picking, targeting me is is what the what what's up? And I was able to escape one time, and after about eight months, and my purpose was to run into a cop, figuring that was my life. That was my lifeline. I'm now free. They had never let me change clothes. I had never washed. They only let me eat when they told me I could eat what they told me to eat. And so, of course, by the time I got, and they, t they played with my brain as much as they could, my mind. So when I got out to the streets, I'm sure I look like the mess. I'm the mess you don't want to deal with out on the street. I'm the mess you just would rather hoo -hoo, walk away from. And so when I got to a cop, uh, I'm sure their reaction was the same. So I am screaming at the cop get me out of here, I've been kidnapped. And meanwhile, the main person who kidnapped me is clean clothes, looks good, short hair, looks, looks presentable. And so they're, up, they're at the cop, I'm screaming like a mad person, which I am, look like, of course, I'm madness, just right there on the streets. And the guy says to the cop, don't mind her, that's my crazy wife. And the cop looks at me, looks at the guy, and says to the guy, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you have such a crazy wife. 
and walks, starts walking away, he turns his back on me. And I realize I'm in trouble. And I just went, wow. Here is my lifeblood abandoning me. Now what? And so the guy realizes, well, this is easier than he probably thought, and grabs me in front of the cop. Cop doesn't mind. Drags me back to the hotel, and I'm just devastated. And so I, I, I prayed to God, and I just said, God, I don't know what I'm doing here. I didn't ask for this. I even got out. I went to what I thought was freedom and release. Oh, I'm back in hell. I got a sign, and I took that sign, and it lasted for three days, and I went, I'm taking the sign. I believe that one day I'll be out of here. It took a couple more try, or not a try, but a couple more goes at it. Here I am today. You are an amazing lady. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. So I got to Seattle, and Seattle, by the time I got to Seattle, by the time I, I think I, that was when I realized I was okay, I, I kind of woke up. I, I breathed, and I went, this was eight years out of my life. And I went, I'm broken. There's nothing to me now. I'm, I'm nowhere. I'm nothing. And I realized that um, no one would have faulted after all I'd gone through. And eight years has gone by, and the world has gone by. And I'm, I'm nothing. I have nothing. I have nothing to offer. I'm nothing. And I was sitting in this living room, and all of a sudden, Grace came to me again and gave me this song and that I carry with me today. It allowed me, although I was I was nothing, allowed me to take one step. And even though I was in tears, I was just nothing. The tears went from being all the time to being half a day, to being once a day, to being every other day. Finally, I could just start walking. And then I, I was at this dental office. I don't remember how this happened. I needed some dental work, and I realized these guys need help. They're a mess. And so I decided to, I'll volunteer to help them out. Because if this works, I've got a career. And so I was able to restructure their dental business so that they went from mess to success. And I went, I think I've got it. <laughs> so I became a dental consultant. Wow. <laughs> I, but I didn't really know the language. So I went to dental assisting school to learn the language. And I did pretty well for a while. But I knew it wasn't really what I wanted. And But it, was, it worked while I got back into breathing and into production and into the world and into life. I needed that. And so it worked. And, but what I really wanted to do was the work that I do do that. And it's, it's helping families with wealth when money is the elephant in the room and have a hard time talking about it and realize it's a challenge, it's a struggle to help them understand the dynamics and clear up miscommunication and the dynamics of family that keep them apart when family is so important. How did you make it from dental assistant to family coach and dynamics guru? Part of why I left home was because money was the elephant in the room. And most, I think a lot of people stay at home because they know that, the bond, that there are subtle or unspoken binds that keep them together. 
or manipulative or directive or dictatorial binds that keep them together that aren't healthy. And yet they keep the family connected. But it's an unhealthy bind because some people hold on to that bind in that family and some people don't. Some people wish they could talk to the family and yet they know that there are others that have a stronger, more manipulative voice. It's very, it's very complicated. And yet it, it, it's very difficult, becomes very difficult for families or can become very difficult for families. And I knew when I left home, I wanted to find the system tools, activities, ways that help families stay together when money is such a big issue. But there was really nothing there at, at the time. And so found the circuitous route back to it. And this was in the late 80s. Uh, when I was consulting with Dennis, I went, I'm still not, I'm still not home. And so then I went, okay, I think I'll go into financial services and that'll give me the path because I know I've got to be talking to families. And so I went into the family services uh, industry, but at that time that was not the path at all. And although I created systems and tools and activities for, at first for, for talking about money, that really wasn't what was wanted. I, uh, so I did it as an outside business and people loved it. And I'm still around today. And then I added my life focus program. People loved it and still around today. And then I added the legacy focus, which is program, which is my focus is, which really is the heart of the, of the, um, of what I do, but it's all money is so important. It's such a delicate, and you know, this you, that's why you have this. I, I, I so appreciate and honor you for this. Um, you understand how delicate and sensitive a topic money is. One of the lines when I read your bio and would appreciate you bringing it to life a little bit more is the talking about the devastating consequences of talking casually about money. I thought that was an interesting way of putting it. Would you, would you bring it to life for us? What you mean by that? Sometimes what I, what I see in families is that there's, there are positions in families when there are siblings Firstborn can be the one that has the ear of the parents and have the great expectations and the responsibilities, which they may or may not want to carry out. How do you talk about that? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, sure, I'll go into the family business, or no, I don't really want to go into the family business, or no, I don't really want to be a lawyer, or no, I don't really want to be a doctor, or yeah, I'll be a doctor. But it's casual. They don't really know how to talk about it in ways that don't devastate the sensitive relationship because they don't want to, they don't want to hurt that sensitivity. Gosh, it's parent and kid. You don't want to upset that. And then there's a the second kid. Second kid feels like the second kid. Nothing left for me. And I'll give you a, an example in today's vernacular and headlines and Harry and William and uh, one is one is heir apparent and the other one's the what do they call it the um, spirit of the air oh ouch and hopefully they weren't brought up that way but it, it can have devastating consequences on just being casual about it so that's sometimes what's brought up if a family is larger then of course that can change those dynamics um, with larger families, it can be the, hey, I'll make sure you're not a voice because I'll talk to the parents about how responsible or how good we are, and I'll talk you down. I know how to do that when there's three, four, five siblings. 
So it becomes much more complicated. And yet the casuality of it certainly can bring casualties, consequences that are devastating to families. I come in to those that see that and want to change that. And I, I honor that because it's a delicate walk they now go upon. But it's beautiful when they choose to go down that walk. It's, it's transformational for them that will last for generations to generations. As the Iroquois, Iroquois said, whenever we make big decisions, it's to think about seven generations from now. It seems like you get a lot of joy out of your work. I love seeing the transformation. I love seeing the dynamic change. I love helping them through the field of mess because the mess is difficult. There are a lot of thorns. There's a lot of weeds to take out. It's work, but it's the kind of work that brings can bring joy. And, it's, and I shouldn't have used the word work because it's not work. It's really commitment to family. I just had an engagement with a, a woman who was was told she may be terminal. And so she has an estate planning attorney and her business attorney, they have a family business. She was told, close things up, we'll pull the trust, we'll be the trustee and you'll be done. And she thought in her mind, I don't think that might be the answer. And so for some way she was brought to me and so I asked them a couple, a few questions, she and her husband. And what was important for her to have her adult children in the conversation, I went, well, is this part of the estate plan you've been asked to have? In which case, that's great. No, that I've been told, sign this paperwork, we'll be your outside trustees. And I said, is this what your family wants to have outside trustees? She says, I don't know. I said, well, let's find out. Because then you will know and you'll know what to do. So they commissioned me to have conversations with their kids, and which I did begrudgingly to the kids. Why? We can talk to our parents. And I said, of course you can but not always as adult to adult. You're used to talking to parent to kid no matter what age you are. And so they agreed to talk to me. And with one, one of the adult kids, it was determined that, yes, they would like to take on the family business. And yes, they've been talking about it with their spouse. And yes, they know how difficult it would, and would be and that it, for them it would mean losing a career. They know all this. They've talked about it in their nuclear family. And the other... Uh, sibling, it's fine. They're fine with that. They just want to be a property holder because family property is what's important to them and their new child. And so I could bring that report back to their, to the parents and they loved hearing that. It was like, oh my gosh, maybe we don't need outside trustees. Maybe the family can figure this out. And that's terrific. Whereas another family, the family is not going to be able to get together. It's not going to happen. And so outside trustees or, or doing other things is go- or selling different parts of the business to different family members is probably going to be their answer. You need to be able to know how to have those conversations and be, have the courage to let those conversations happen so you can define what's correct for your family to keep the family intact if that is what you want. Take the time to find, to build the family foundation. It's priceless, and it works. Baj, what would be your top one, two, or three tips to a family that wants to have productive money conversations? Everybody has a voice, and everybody's voice is important. No matter how quiet, 
no matter how unpurposed or scared they might be to speak their voice. It's important to let every voice be heard. But towards what is the question? Number two is to have purpose. Money with purpose, whether it's family money or individual money, allows you to know what your money is for. And that can drive money decisions so much easier because you know what your money's for. And then I'll put a subset to that. It's vital to separate family money from individual money. They each have their own reason for being. Let them each have their own reason for being and let them have a bridge of communication to the other so that each can learn how to talk to the other in ways that matter. I'd like to hear more about the individual and family money and keeping that separate. I have found that it is fundamental if you have a family with money to separate family money from individual money for so many reasons. So that let's say I was a child in a family with money. I'm not thinking the family money is my pool and oasis, my crutch, my saving grace. And it may be, but if I have to know what it's for so that I know, oh, I guess I have to find my own individual money and my own purpose for my own things that are not, oh, I guess this isn't the oasis for, any, for everything. There's a comic book of Richie Rich, and he's swimming in his pool, and I have a couple of covers I love to use that I've purchased, because to me, they say so much in so many ways. And one of them is about just swimming in the pool of money. Yes, I've got it all. Yes, you do if the family money is your money, but what one day it will run out, or one day it's meant to flow somewhere else, or what happens to your kids or your kids' kids? Remember, seven generations of the Iroquois tribe. Just to think and to separate so that people can find their own individuality and their own purpose. Doesn't mean they have to find their own careers necessarily, but to, to learn how to separate that. And family money, was what is it for? Maybe it's for education. Maybe it's to... Um, to have that family vacation home that the family should keep for generations. Uh, maybe it's for extra support or their house or the next generation buy the next house or whatever. I don't know because it's your family money, not mine. So you determine what it's for, what's family purpose for that money so that the next generations can know or so that when I give you family, if I give you money, and I'm not wishing that you'd give me a thank you, but you don't know how because this is new. I don't know, what, what am I supposed to do with this? Thank you or just quickly put it in the bank account and wonder what I'm going to do with it because I don't know why you really gave it to me. There's so many personal thoughts around money, behaviors, thoughts, stories around money. Money's not as easy as you think, as we all think. Baj, you've accomplished so much. You've done so many different things. What's one thing you haven't done yet that you'd like to accomplish? I could say none because I, I'm home. 
And you can tell from my conversation, I'm home helping families find their home and their life together confidently, significantly, and in a connected way that can last for many more than seven generations in ways that are purposeful and meaningful to them. I think for me, if there was, if there was anything, it's just to serve more families in ways that are meaningful to them. But that's out of my hand. I'm home. So being home is part of the grace. This is what I asked for. And Baj, we'd like to ask you our final question that we ask all of our guests. What's your next money conversation going to be and who is it going to be with? I'm waiting for a phone call from a client right now that will be a very invigorating money conversation. And what I've loved in the conversations with this individual how quickly they have gone from, because almost because they've had to, I don't really talk about money, to I'm in because they have to, they have to be in and how I knew their strength and I knew that they would get in here quickly. I'm looking forward to the next very involving conversation that they need to have about some money decisions that they need to make. And I'm looking forward to this with them, to hear their strength and to hear where we need to go to next or what they need to do next. Sounds like a great conversation, Baj, and that it's very lucky that the family has you. I want to thank you for sharing your money stories and the story of your life with us. You've been on a windy, twisty road, and we're so glad you made it home and that you're living there and that you're having such a joyous, satisfying life making long-lasting, multi-generational impacts on the people that you're working with. I welcome that remark. Thank you so much, Sandy. At the same time, I can't convey my delight and my honor in you too, Sandy and Cami, for the work you do, for this podcast, for the impact you want to make in the world with people and for people with their lives with money. That, to me, is golden. So thank you. Thank you, Baj. Thanks, Baj. Sandy, tell me, what's a takeaway from our conversation with Baj Townsend on Money Tales that you'd like to share with our listeners? Cami, I really appreciated how Baj had a focus on being an independent woman from when she was very young and how that stayed with her during her life. And I felt her story as she told it sort of unwound like a movie with, with many different scenes. And she described them in such detail and with such grace. Uh, I think about in this theme of independent woman, her working as a longshore woman and having to deal with blatantly being kept out of the union and working really hard and how she was determined to do that because all she really knew was hard work. And later when she had the opportunity to go on tour as a jazz guitarist and her thinking through, even though that was her dream, she wanted to remain an independent woman and she could tell that if she went down that path, she wouldn't be independent. She would have been dependent on drugs and perhaps other vices. And then, of course, surviving that terrible, long-standing kidnapping 
she got through it independently. She got through it with grace, grace by her side. I, I loved what she had to say about all of that. Sandy, it was a hard part of her life. It was a hard part to hear. I appreciate her bringing it up because it brought to life all the things she was talking about. But for her to get through something horrific like that took a person of deep, deep strength. I'm sure it opens up wounds every time she talks about it. It was unbelievable to to listen and be be part of. She is really a, a tremendous lady and, and an inspiration. Sandy, I, I loved when she talked about coming out of college and starting a restaurant with some of her fellow students. And first of all, restaurant business is like, it's not one in a hundred, one in a hundred survive. And they were profitable in year one. And they had this amazing model that I loved this idea that we aren't going to set the prices. We'll let people pay for what they believe the value to be. And for me, what I loved about that is I have to think there were some percentage that underpaid the cost, but I bet the vast majority overpaid because they weren't, they weren't being limited, right? They, they were given the option to say, this was a great experience. This was great food, whatever. And they set the price and I thought that was fantastic. I'm, I'm actually not surprised it was profitable. I too was moved by <laughs> that notion and appreciated how Boz shared that she and her colleagues were having lots of conversation about money. Of course they had to. How do you budget when you don't know what the revenue is going to be? And they, it sounded like we're having really hard open conversations and what a terrific time period in life to be forced to have such important money conversations. I, I thought that was a great learning for, for all of us. I also liked, Cami that Baj expressed that it's important when it comes to money that everyone has a voice and everyone's voice needs to be heard. Everyone has a voice and everyone's voice needs to be heard. I think that's such an important lesson in talking about money. And it seemed as if Baj learned that lesson early on in her life because it sounds like she wasn't, her voice was not heard in her family, not in the way that she was hoping anyway. She's obviously intelligent, had good ideas of her own, but her family wasn't listening. And that's really frustrating. And I appreciated her sharing that with us as well. And it's no wonder she does the work she does to help people make sure that they're listening to all the voices around the table in the family environment. And creating space for them. And I'm so grateful that Baj shared her stories with us and shared her voice, her insights, her strength and persistence. I really appreciated all of that. Me too, Sandy. I, Baj was a really a, a special guest, and I appreciate all the sharing, the good and the bad. Thank you, Baj, and thank you, listeners, for listening to this episode of Money Tales. You can contact us through email at podcasts at com 
We'd love to hear your money stories. So please reach out to us. Tell us about them. See you next time on Money Tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.